Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Marketing Life Podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance. My name is Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jomper. As part of this series, we're connecting with PMMs all over the world about various product marketing topics. Today, I'm joined by Edward Ramson, Payments Product Marketing Manager at Clio. Before joining Clio, Ed owned and operated a successful lawn care business for seven years. It's through that business that Ed pursued his next opportunity, the first in product marketing, at Jobber, a company he was actually a customer of. For three years, Ed was the product marketing manager for Jobber's emerging fintech offering, during which he and I met when I joined Jobber earlier this year. Now at Clio, Ed finds himself leading the fintech charge yet again, this time for Clio's payment solution. Clio, a Canadian SaaS business, is the leading online software solution built exclusively for legal practices. Clio enables law firms to deliver better client experiences through cloud-based practice management, CRM, and client intake software. Employing over 500 staff across five global offices, Clio has been named one of Canada's best managed companies, a Deloitte Fast 50 company, and one of Canada's most admired corporate cultures. During our chat, Ed and I discussed the growing role FinTech is playing at many SaaS businesses across the globe. As you'd expect, product marketing has had an impact on how these SaaS businesses adopt and go to market with new FinTech offerings which is where product marketers like Ed and myself have found ourselves today in our respective roles. All right, with that out of the way, let's do it. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Good, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. Happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a while since we last had the chance to uh, to chat. As I mentioned in the intro, you and I you know, spent some time working together at Jobber, so it's always nice to see a familiar face when we record these uh, podcasts. Yeah, I find we chat a lot on LinkedIn, like by messaging, but it's nice to actually see you, well, not in the flesh, but over over Zoom video, it's nice to actually see your face again. Likewise. The crazy thing is, is despite us working together for, I think, close to three months, we never actually met in person, given the craziness of the times that we live. But yeah, the, yeah. the virtual uh, re- reintroduction of one another is always a nice change as opposed to just chatting via, via LinkedIn. So it's good to see your face. Alrighty. So, I'm fortunate enough to know quite a bit about you based on our brief time together at Jobber. But for our listeners, can you give an overview of your career journey so far and what you do at Clio? Yeah, I think my career journey hasn't been that straightforward. Uh, I mean, like, so like a lot of people leave high school and they tell you to go to university. I decided to do science because I was a pretty curious person. I liked how like the natural world worked, but I never thought about what science gets you as a job or a career. You know, you're in your last year of science and they're like, oh, okay, if you want to get a job, you need to go do a master's or you need to go do a PhD. <clears throat> and I never had the discipline or care to be a doctor. I wasn't smart enough either. So I started being like, oh no, did I make a huge mistake studying science for all these years? <clears throat> and my dad was um, at the time an accountant. I'd been an accountant for, I don't know, his entire life and knew I really liked business as well. Uh, so just through like, a couple of some serendipity he had someone who had a lawn care business and we ended up taking it over. So I ended up running this lawn care business, which over the years changed. And we had this lawn care business for seven years and I ran that. Uh, and then, you know, just running this business, had seven employees, a bunch of trucks, a, a building. So it was a pretty well-established business and it was providing everything you needed in life. I kind of looked at that and I was like, okay, like running a small business is great. It's rewarding, but it's not where I wanted to be in 10 years, where I was thinking about being like 35 or 40, it's not where I wanted to be, was just running like a bunch of crews and having a small business. And also, you know, to be honest, running a small business is hard, it's stressful. And I think at times it can be lonely. And for me, like one of the things I love in life is learning. 
when you run your own small business, sometimes you run out of people to learn from, right? You'll build this social network of friends and you can talk shop with other small business owners, but you know, there's not someone there beside you every day to learn from. Whereas you go to like a startup, it's a really dynamic environment and you start learning from people. So I was thinking, well, how do I get into that sort of software environment? Um, and I was like, I don't know, I know nothing about software. I've had this lawn maintenance business for seven years. And I was like, no, I do know something about software. I've used Jobber for at the time it would be in five years. And I know this software like the back of my hand, like maybe I can get in there. And I applied once I got turned down. I think I applied twice. I got turned down. I think I applied it maybe a second or third time. <clears throat> and the person in charge of people or HR at the time was like, stop applying for jobs. You're applying for jobs in every direction. You need to pick a direction, show some commitment to it and, and uh, go from there. <clears throat> So I take that's great advice. Uh, so I ended up taking a bunch of courses through the University of Alberta on uh, product management, actually, not product marketing. So I did a bunch of product mark or PM courses. And I started going to PM meetups. <laughs> and just like through serendipity, I met at the time the vice president of marketing at one of the meetups after is at a bar. Started talking to him. And he's like, oh, you should come work for me in marketing. And I, he didn't, I don't know if he knew. But at the time, I'd been trying to get into Jobber for a year. And I was like, this is my end. This, this like chance moment of meeting the vice president over a beer at a bar. It was like the bar beside Jobber. This is my end. <clears throat> but it took me a year of meeting with him. And he lived in Toronto at the time. And I was in Edmonton. So he would fly into Edmonton where Jobber's headquarters was once a month for a week, probably. So we'd meet every time he flew into town. So for a year, we met eventually got him to give me a, a job, got an interview, got in, started at the bottom of the totem pole at, at job with product marketing. That's how I got into it. Uh, sort of learned the ropes. I had a really great boss at Jobber, Nazare, who I, I call Q, but she taught me a lot and then started progressing through the, the career at Jobber. And then eventually felt it was time to like jump under a bigger challenge and decided to move over to Clio probably four months ago when this podcast comes out yeah so then over like the years fintech became more of a thing and jobber spun up a fintech team and they asked me like do you want to work on payments and i was like not really like payments are kind of boring and then i sat about it overnight i thought about like oh am i making a mistake and then i was like oh i should go back to, to the time nas and be like yeah i, I think this is a good career move i'll do payments and it came out that day that wasn't payments per se. There's kind of a fintech team. I'm like, fintech, that's totally different than payments. Uh, so I almost turned down the offer to like join this fintech team because they were talking about it as payments. So I just sort of through like, you know, just thought about it. I was like, I guess I should join this. And I did and haven't looked back since. I love that story. I know I've heard it um, before when you were introducing yourself when you and I met, but there's so many things about your journey that I think a lot of our listeners and aspiring product marketers can um, identify with. And that's the willingness to stick with it and having to continue on and push through multiple rejections, sometimes at the same company before truly finding the area, whether it's business in general or marketing or specific to product marketing that is the right fit for you. So I not only commend your you know dedication and drive to, to push through those you know almost two years of trying to get in at a jobber, um, but also to our listeners want to say that like 
if you don't get the job the first time, there's nothing wrong with continuing to try. And you mentioned that your interaction with the VP of marketing at Jobber was a bit of a lucky situation where you just happened to bump into him at a bar. But what that also highlights is put a face to the name on their resume, right? Like try and meet the people working at that organization so that they know who you are and they can see past maybe your lack of hands-on marketing experience and see like, hey, this person, this guy, Ed, he's smart. He's run a successful business for seven years. He's obviously very passionate about our company. Let's give him a shot and look what that has has gotten um, you so far in your career and where you are now. Oh, yeah. So- I think like too, it's like getting a return on your luck as well. Product marketing, you have to wear many different hats. Like it's not a clearly defined role. It's different in every organization and each product marketer takes different spin to where they want to approach the job. And like I met the vice president at a product marketing or a product management meetup, right? So I was like still trying to get involved in tech companies. There's there's lots of ways to get involved in tech companies and get involved in product marketing because there's no one size fits all for product marketing, which I think is kind of the beautiful thing about it is that anybody who has like a strong business background or a strong customer background, you can come up from either end. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So let's, let's take a second and actually touch on that experience owning your own lawn care business prior to coming to Jobber. Because it's not often product marketers get to actually work for the company that they were once a customer for. So I'm curious, how do you feel that experience or perspective impacted your approach to product marketing, having been effectively a customer of the solution that you ultimately came to sell and market as a product marketer for? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because in one sense, you know, you've used the product at the time before I went to job, right? I used it for seven years. So I knew it like the back of my hand, right? And I can knew exactly where each button was and like the click pass. I could do that in my sleep. <clears throat> but you also need to be conscientious of the fact that you only know like your experience with it as like the industry that you're working in or the way you decide to implement the software. So sometimes it's a lot of like, you you think you know the answer to like a strategic, strategic problem that the company's working on, but you need to kind of like check yourself and go try to verify it by talking to other industries. Um, but I think like the parts that I felt like I had a advantage with or was able to leverage my experience was that a lot of times like these, these tech companies are very data rich, um, but sometimes the insights aren't that obvious. So like looking at the raw data of like customer usage or feature usage, whatever it is, I was able to quickly just look at that and apply the context of what the small business is actually doing, right? So like look at the numbers and well, this is actually what happened. They're struggling with not getting enough jobs or they're not converting jobs fast enough and that's affecting their cash flow, whatever the situation is. I think wider for the marketing team, um, I think by many people I was viewed as almost like a expert in small business. And I think I use that term with hesitancy because, you know, like when you're an individual, you kind of, get shy about calling yourself an expert, right? You don't want to feel a little bit like arrogant with that. But I think a lot of people did view me as having like a deep understanding of small businesses. Uh, And that came across, like we do a lot of persona work or trying to map out how like an HVAC company grows. And when you're talking to these small business owners, while you weren't in their industry, you understand their shop talk and the things that they're saying without saying it. So the gaps they're leaving uh, and I think a lot of that, you know, I think that's a skill that any product marketer can get if they talk to enough people in the industry they're working with. But when you've lived and worked in that sort of small business environment for seven years, you just know what someone's saying without them having to say it. 
so you can quickly pick up on their pain points that they aren't talking about and the gaps they're leaving in their stories. Sure, and you know, I think one of the things that I recognized early in my career when I was going through you know the ropes as a new product marketer was to your point, you have this perspective, even if it's an exp- a perspective built through experiences um, similar to the ones your customers feel or in that same industry, it is still your perspective. So you have to really challenge yourself to remove that bias and, and put yourselves in the shoes of your customers as best you can and, and you know show that empathy that we often talk about as product marketers. And it's not always easy. And I think you know, we're very lucky um, to find ourselves in roles where we can actually engage with a product uh, and use it, talk to people and be exposed to people who use our solutions because small business owners or lawyers with the work that you're doing at Clio are accessible. Now, unfortunately, not every product marketer has that privilege and that luxury. Um, So it's more challenging for some than others. But if you can, that's definitely something you want to really push yourself to do is immerse yourself in that environment, immerse yourself in that field so you can learn as much as possible. And to your point, pick up on some of those nuances, like the shop talk, like the terms being used, like the experience of actually navigating the product and really knowing it really well, because it's going to make your ability to then position and message either the solution overall or new features that much more relatable and resonate that much more with your customer base. So um, yeah, definitely something that we are, again, fortunate enough to, to be able to do. But for those listening, if you can, definitely encourage that same kind of exploration and immersion if you can get it. Yeah, and there's something important you said there that sticks out for me. It's it's as a product marketer, you're going to gain this intuition of how the market that you're working in reacts to certain messaging or feature or strategy, whatever it is. And it's important that you follow your intuition, but it's equally as important you try to check that intuition against some data point or another opinion. <clears throat> but definitely like your intuition is powerful once you get enough knowledge of that industry or that business, whatever it is. But again, like find the data point or whatever it is to check it and be like, is this assumption actually correct? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, you know, the fortunate um, aspect of, of working in, in software and in tech is that there's an abundance of data, as you mentioned earlier, and um, having those opinions are great, but they need to be balanced against that kind of objective um, data that you have access to. So yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree more with you there. Awesome. Well, let's dive into the meat of our conversation today. And that's the really growing and exciting world of fintech. For our listeners who may not be up to speed on all things fintech or maybe hearing the term fintech for maybe the first or second time, could you just give them an overview of what fintech really is and and why it's considered to be this kind of next big wave of of growth for SaaS businesses? Yeah, I think I'll start with fintech means financial technology. And while that seems obvious, I recently learned how many of my friends didn't understand what I did and not just in the way that most product marketers have experienced, like trying to explain what you do for a, a life or a career. But people thought when I said I worked in fintech, it was a company. Uh, and then they realized that fintech is a shorthand for financial technology. And that actually goes a long way. Um, but if you think about fintech, financial technology, you know, your classic, like pure fintechs, like PayPal or Square, whatever it is. And they do payments or Robinhood or if you're in Canada, Wealthsimple, something like that. Um, but so fundamentally, it's about taking financial um, sort of tools like credit card processing or business um, financing, buy now, pay later, insurance, payroll, any of those sort of financial related tools uh, and bring them into a SaaS business. Uh, and I think anything about a SaaS business, a lot of these SaaS businesses started off with a core workflow um, that didn't include payments. But somewhere along the line, they were getting their customer to the point where they needed to get paid. So the natural extension became, well, why don't we just 
you know, either borrow someone's tool like embed or work with PayPal, for example, and help them integrate into our software and they can use PayPal to get paid. Then they eventually figured out, well, well, you know, we could build our own payments platform and bring it in house. And that's sort of like, it's a pretty mature market now with SaaS businesses adding payments and other financial products like lending, buy now, pay later, getting a little bit more mature. There's a little bit of things that are less mature, like bank accounts or credit card or adding card issuing, uh, payrolls a lot less mature. But fundamentally what happens is that um, it's all derived from like customer value. And I think that's the way to start the conversation as well as when you add this core functionality to your product to help your customer get paid, the benefit they get from your product is increased, right? So instead of this, you know, let's pick restaurants, for example, instead of this restaurant trying to manage multiple pieces of software now, you know, they got the POS, they've got their ordering software, they've got their um, inventory software, they can use it all in one. It means they're not looking between pieces of software. They're not trying to reconcile different things. They're not trying to find different data points, understand how their business is doing. When it's in one place, like for restaurants, it could be toast. Their life's way easier. And they have a lot greater understanding of how their business is doing when all those systems are in one place. Um, So there's like a huge amount of customer value from it. And also if you're in a restaurant or if you're in a business that like is working with customers, you need to invoice and bill, you're not in person. Usually offering online payments gets you paid significantly more quickly. And, you know, you often talk about small businesses. One of the big problems is cash flow and getting, so actually getting paid more quickly um, alleviates a lot of those problems for small businesses. So that's the customer value. And you can only get the thing I'll talk about after from giving your customer a huge amount of value. But what happens when you bring payments in house, for example, um, is you bring a lot more revenue, right? So you're able to book a lot of that, those processing fees as revenue, as gross revenue for your business, which means that the, the value of a customer increases, right? So now the lifetime value of the LTV increases significantly. Sometimes it's like, you know, they bring in two to five times more revenue per customer. And that has a huge knock-on effect to the LTV, which now is changing your unit economics. So that means you can go spend more in your customer acquisition costs or your CAC. So now what's happening is, um, a lot of these like vertical SaaS markets, the winner take all mentality. So the person who has the best unit economics has the best chance of winning that market. So now when you have a higher LTV, you can go spend more on CAC. So that means you can increase the TAM of the market, or the total available, total available market. And you can go find customers that are more, that were too ex- expensive to go after before. So you can add in new marketing channels. Um, you can actually expand into new markets that were too expensive to go into before. Uh, and that's like fundamentally what the benefit for the business is, uh, like the SaaS business is that it's better unit economics by a significant amount. I love that. Thanks. That was such a great and thorough description of, of really not just what, you know, FinTech is, but why it's become this like huge topic of discussion for SaaS businesses. Um, especially now is to your point more and more of these fintech solutions are being out or being rolled out rather beyond just payments, right? You talked about lending, you talked about um, banking, you talked about insurance and payroll, and there's a tremendous amount of value, like you said, that businesses can offer to their customers um, that especially those in small businesses just didn't have access to before, right? You know, one of the biggest reasons, and, and you referenced this just now that a lot of small businesses fail is because of poor cash flow. So 
opening up a suite of payment related tools so that they can get paid faster or get paid more reliably significantly increases the chances that business is actually going to be successful. And, you know, obviously because we're in the sector that we're in, in technology, we often just hear about these big tech companies, you know, getting these huge runs of funding and employing hundreds of, if not thousands of people, a really small business is the heart of our economy. Um, SMBs make up, I think, the majority of the economic value that any um, country, or at least developing or developed country rather, generates. So with fintech, you're able to bring in these new tools that help businesses essentially be more successful and, and kind of fight the biggest challenges around, um, you know, running a cash flow positive business. So I think... Yeah. For that reason, and all the ones you just mentioned, it's an incredibly exciting time, at least I think, um, otherwise it wouldn't be in the space, to be part of fintech. And you know, it's a big opportunity for product marketers to be a part of that exciting journey, I think. Yeah. One more benefit for that, that small business is that <clears throat> their customers are experiencing really great examples embedded fintech <clears throat> in the rest of their world, right? They go online to order, skip the dishes or Uber Eats, whatever the story is, or they go buy it from Amazon or they go to Lululemon or Peloton and use buy now, pay later. So their customers are experiencing this and that becomes their expectation. So now when a small business owner is able to offer that experience, that, that beautiful checkout experience that's seamless or offers buy now, pay later, they're able to compete and offer level service they weren't able to do before. And they're usually able to do it, you know, whatever the subscription fee for their SaaS business is, um, so, right? It's usually $100, $150 a month, somewhere in that range. And they're now able to compete and offer this like world-class level of customer experience that they couldn't do by themselves. So it's also this like, they get to offer better service to their customers. And that means they're retaining their customers at a better rate and they can make more money off their customers. Like it's this huge knock-on effect of value you can deliver through financial technology. Massive. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really becoming a competitive advantage for a lot of these small uh, and medium-sized businesses, especially the ones that are adopting these fintech solutions a lot earlier than others in their market. And yeah, you know, among a lot of other things, the past two years of, of shifting a lot of the things that we do um, traditionally in person to online, like the majority of our shopping, um, that to your point, level of expectation from your average consumer, whether it's a homeowner, whether it's a client of a lawyer or any other professionally managed service, th that expectation gets elevated. So when you, as a small business owner go and say, oh, well, just pay me cash or pay me check, uh, especially for younger uh, consumers, they don't carry cash or check. And they're like, well, can I just pay you? Yeah, I, don't can even, I just don't even own a checkbook. So, right. Perfect example. Um, so if, if you as a small business owners can't offer that level of service and exceed or meet your customers' expectations, it could cost you business. So yeah, like I said, for that reason and many more, fintech is a very exciting space to be in, especially for product marketer. But with that excitement, there's obviously some challenges. And I'm curious what you've come across in your career so far in terms of challenges uh, about being a product marketer, driving fintech solutions at a SaaS business, especially in sectors where customers might not necessarily be the most financially or tech savvy individuals themselves. Yeah. I think there's two like, dimensions to that. There's the customer aspect. There's also the internal aspect, um, but we'll focus on the customer part too. First is that all these SMBs, they live and die with checks. I and mean, it's the hardest market to move off of checks. <clears throat> uh, they just love, you know, the convenience of it. I think in terms of like it's money in their hand, essentially. Uh, but it's, I think checks to represent like low processing fees and they, they're very fee sensitive. Some of these businesses, 
So you think about the, the adoption curve that a lot of these small businesses are on, <clears throat> you know, you probably get into like early majority sort of territory with payments and payments are now becoming commoditized in a bit too. So you just like two things happening with these uh, customers. You have a bunch of customers who are already using online payments or different fintech solutions, right? So they might come to your SaaS business with Square already in their business to get paid. Um, and now you're having this conversation about like the value of embedded payments into a SaaS business, which is a really powerful conversation, but it's really nuanced and hard to get the value across sometimes. And then you've got this other part of your customer base that, you know, does not want to give up checks because they're so fee sensitive. So then you start talking about solutions like ACH or e-checks or bank transfers, whatever the thing is, but they don't realize that um, back to one of your points earlier, they're in this like two-sided marketplace that they have to offer a solution that their customers want to pay with. So yeah, they want checks and they're asking for checks or cash or when you give them online payments and you give them ACH, they're like, all my customers are going to pay with ACH. Well, no one wants to pay through their bank account. I want to get the rewards on my credit card when I pay for a service, no matter if it's a lawyer or a home service business. So they, these businesses sometimes struggle to understand what their customers want. And they're not usually asking the questions of like, how do you want to pay? They're just sort of giving them like, hey, pay me by check. And they might wait two weeks for that check. So that's just this, like this challenge of getting them to understand what their customer expectation really is. And it's about the convenience of online payments usually. Um, and I think like getting them to understand the, this value of using payments is twofold, right? So they're going to get paid faster, but when you get into the deeper embedded fintech products, um, like lending, for example, you know, I can make a, a SaaS business can make a lending decision based off of the actual cash flow that you're bringing in and not based off your credit history. And there's a huge advantage to that. Yeah, some of those like lending costs are higher than traditional bank would be, but the collateral you need doesn't need to be there. So there's a, this trade-off for it. So there's like a huge leg up that you can offer these businesses when you can get into financing for them and sort of try and get them to understand, you know, they don't need to think about their, their bank anymore. No one loves their bank. So that's usually an easy conversation, but getting them onto payments in the first place, you can start giving them different products. Uh, and that's like, you know, I promise never and go away is getting people to understand the value of your product. And that's why we exist as product marketers. But another big challenge, which I think people overlook is the internal challenge. Uh, frequently, a lot of these SaaS businesses don't start off as offering payments when they, when they go to market as their first entry into the market, like Jobber or Clio, whoever it is, or Toast or whatever the situation is. So then internally, people have built this mental heuristic of what the company does and how they talk to their customers. And it doesn't include payments and the core workflow is not include payments. And frequently what happens from my experience is that a lot of these SaaS companies talk about the revenue is going to come in through payments because it's so easy. Some of these numbers of like processing volume are eye water and they're in the billions. And then like the gross revenue that the, the SaaS business keeps is quite significant as well. So that's a lot of the messaging you hear across businesses, like SaaS businesses, of how much money we're going to bring and how it's going to affect our share price and like the road to IPO. And I think those sort of conversations, while they're important, sometimes can be counterproductive because it makes internal stakeholders feel like they're they're used car salespeople, and they're like, we're only getting our customers to use payments because we're making money off of it, and it's forgetting the conversation that's critically important is that we're offering embedded payment solutions and embedded fintech because there's an inherent value to our customer. 
and getting people to understand now that the core part of the SaaS business includes getting paid or lending or whatever this, the fintech solution is, that's usually one of the biggest hurdles is, is switching the internal narrative of like what the core SaaS product is that includes the fintech part. Uh, and that's always like an education. You don't ever want a customer support rep to feel like they're a used car salesperson being forced to sell payments on something. It's like, well, you, we're giving them payments because it's going to get them paid faster. It's going to help their business succeed. It's going to help their business survive. And then, you know, we can get into lending and other products, but that's a huge issue too, is just getting internal stakeholders to really understand the value of why we're doing it. It's not just for the, the SaaS business's share price. Absolutely. And there's a, you mentioned something that I really want to dig into deeply here uh, real quick. And that's this idea of, you know, nobody likes their bank. And I think part of the reason why I can, you know, list countless times, um, but because conversations with the banks tend to be in the minds of most consumers or small business owners, quite dry and quite technical and quite almost intentionally confusing. So I think to layer on another added element of the challenge to that internal side of things that you just referenced is when you do have to go and educate your internal sales team or your internal marketing team or success team on the best way to demonstrate that value, but also navigate a somewhat complex and nuanced and technical conversation around payment fees and, you know, underwriting and all, oh, the, yeah. you know, the fun stuff that uh, banks have had decades to perfect. It's challenging for your average salesperson or really anybody where FinTech is new to a company to be able to articulate that and navigate those conversations comfortably. Yeah. And <laughs> You bring up fees and that's like a thing that product marketers who work in fintech are always faced with. Like, how do you explain fees for lending or buy now, pay later or, or online payments? I think people are so used to the experience with their bank where they have no idea really how they're getting charged for things. And they always feel like they're being nickel and dined by their bank. Do they really expect that a lot of time from payments? And most of these SaaS businesses who are going to market with fintech solutions are doing it with a lot of transparency. Yeah, there's some companies who probably are making money in ways that isn't that transparent, especially when you get them buy now, pay later, and somehow the, the, the interest repayments work. Um, but with online payments, like a lot of people internally in the business don't understand how payments work, like Interchange Plus versus a flat rate, um, or the end customer doesn't understand how it works. There's tons of education to understand how credit card processing works, right? And I think a lot of times the end consumer gets confused by it. So they just focus on whatever the headline rate is. And it's really hard to move them off that position of trying to educate them of like, well, you think you're paying that, but let's help you understand what you're really paying. You try to get this conversation effective or true rate. And like, it's, it's a never ending conversation, both internally and externally about like, no, we've made this as simple as possible for you because our mission in life is to help you as a business be successful. We can't do that if we act like the bank and try to confuse you. Absolutely. Transparency in everything you do, especially as a SaaS business is so critical to your success. And we've seen businesses and you referenced a couple just now um, that failed to deliver that level of transparency that consumers expect. And it always bites them in the end. It always comes back to get them. So yeah, the more transparent you can be in it. And again, that's where a lot of these fintech businesses, um, even just the ones providing the solutions to the SaaS businesses themselves have really leaned into that transparency and it's been able to, you know, supercharge their growth. Like I think about Stripe as a, as an example, like they're all about transparency you know, and, and a lot of the things that they do. And that's only helped them not only get more business through their SaaS partners, but also those SaaS partners have been able to leverage that transparency to then sell their own fintech solutions to their customers. So yeah, I definitely agree with you there. 
on the topic of those challenges, do you have any suggestions for any of our listeners who are faced with those challenges themselves, maybe in their own roles, how those challenges can be overcome? What things have you done without getting too specific or at least as specific as you can? Um, how have you addressed some of those challenges? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it takes patience. Um, you know, you're never going to get everybody on board internally or your customers in one day. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day which is an obvious statement because a product marketer is kind of easy to forget. You go build this great go-to-market and it doesn't hit right away. So I think it's this game of patience of building trust where you need to just continually be stacking up small wins, right? And you, with a lot of fintech solutions, it's, it's constant education. And it's trying to find out when's the right time to talk to your customer about it. You know, is it the first time they create an invoice or bill or whatever the story is? But it's about, you know, constantly keeping your foot on the gas and providing different nurture campaigns and education campaigns to different um, marketing channels. Like, is it like YouTube videos? Is it customer support stories? Is it case studies? You have to do all of those things. You, you sort of need to build that into the back of their head that they know that they should be getting paid with your product, where they should be using your product for lending or buy now, pay later or insurance, whatever the story is, you need to keep that constant pressure up. I think, especially with insurance, is like when I don't think it's clearly understood yet. Like when you push your SMB, who's like your SaaS client, to buy insurance, right? Like what's the insurance buying cycle? And a lot of these products have a huge switching cost, and so I think you know these campaigns need to be ongoing um, because the switching cost is so high for these businesses. You kind of like need to find the right moment where they're willing to be like. I've had enough with my current provider or I'm going to adopt payments or whatever the story is. It's like they eventually hit their breaking point of their current solution isn't working. You need to be there at the right moment. And it's really hard to predict what that right moment is. So yeah, it's just building that trust that they can trust your SaaS business, that you're going to provide a great value to them. But it also goes internally too, right? It's building trust with customer support teams and the sales teams that you understand that, you know, as a sales rep, adding payments to the conversation complicates the sale. They don't want to lose the sale because of payments. You're trying to understand internal stakeholders, what matters to them and how they're measured for success and trying to help um, present payments in a way that gets them closer to their KPIs or OKRs as well. Yeah, I, I think like just to kind of summarize here, uh, habits are hard to break, whether it's your customers' habits or internal habits, right? And I think a lot of what you just shared around, you know, snacking up the small wins and being persistent and really putting in the time and effort on educating and informing really helps slowly chip away at those habits. But there is no silver bullet, right? To your point, you have to kind of put yourself in the right place at the right time. And building that trust will help, you know, at least get you in that consideration set when your customer is ultimately ready to say, hey, I've had enough. I want a different solution. Yeah. But you know, there is no simple solution basically. And I think your advice is incredibly helpful to anybody looking to at least like start their process of chipping away at those habits. Um, so I thank you for sharing that because there's some real good gems in there that uh, I think anybody looking to do the same thing should follow. I think tactically, like I would lead you with like education pieces first, right? Try and demystify payments or financing or buy now, pay later, just trying to build trust by being transparent and helping them understand the solution. Um, so when they are ready to change, they trust you. And because you've educated them on how these things work and what the benefit is and why they should be picking you to do it. Couldn't agree with you more. 
Awesome. So when we, you know, we talk, we talked about how fintech is becoming this increasingly important part of how SaaS businesses are looking to grow beyond that continued driver of growth. How do you see the fintech space evolving over the coming years? And what role do you think product marketing is going to play as part of that evolution? Yeah. I think if you look at the, like the fintech spectrum, you really mature products like payments, Lending is pretty mature. You know, when you think about a firm that's, you know, you know, a buy now, pay later products in almost every checkout experience you see online with e-commerce. It's not that mature with service businesses. There's companies like WiseTech who do a really good job for service businesses. Um, but then there's products that are a lot less mature, like issuing cards, uh, insurance. I mean, insure tech is really hot right now. But bank accounts, that's going to be a real challenge of helping someone understand why they should use your SaaS business for the core function of that now includes payments. How do you add a bank account to that conversation? Is it like start a business in a box? Uh, and then you start going to like payroll and benefits, like why they should use you for this. I think once we get to those less mature products like payroll, bank accounts, insurance, those are going to be a lot harder conversations to have with your customers because it's going to be confusing the lines of what they come to a SaaS business for. And it's going to be changing their expectations of where they should be getting these products from. They're not going to be phoning up their local like insurance registry to get insurance for their small business. Maybe they're going to be getting through their SaaS business. Uh, and those are going to be really interesting conversations about how you set the expectation that a lot of these services can be delivered online. And then when you, you should expect this from your SaaS business, right? that you should expect to get a bank account when you open it up. And the value of the bank account is usually quicker payouts or lower fees or whatever the situation is. But trying to sell someone a bank account is a huge trust situation. Yeah, people don't like banks, but they definitely trust them with their money. So, oh, I'm going to put all my deposits with my SaaS business. Uh, that's going to be a really hard conversation, I think, when that market starts to come a little bit more mature. And like payroll and benefits, yeah, there's huge benefit to some cool payroll products like um, paying out earned wages daily. That'd be really great for worker retention. And a lot of these small businesses struggle. I think one of the biggest things small businesses struggle with is getting and retaining good employees. So that payroll is going to be an important factor, but it's so it's not mature right now at all. And having that conversation is going to be really difficult to explain yeah, we're a SaaS business and you use it for your, your core workflow to run your SMB, but payroll is now part of that core workflow. Absolutely. I appreciate you sharing kind of your forward-looking perspective on how things are moving. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned early on that when you were in high school, you didn't think you were smart enough to be a doctor. I think if high school ed could listen to this conversation, they might disagree with that assessment because I think you've you know, even just in working with you and even just reinforcing this conversation now, you've got some really good perspective and insights, not just in product marketing, but in fintech as a whole. So I appreciate you sharing those insights with not just myself today, because I got a ton of value out of this conversation. I always do when I chat with you, Ed, um, but I'm sure our listeners did as well. So I appreciate that uh, and for your time. But with that, we've come to our final question. And this is one that I just more recently started asking all of our guests. And that's, if you could be a product marketer at any company in the world for any product or service they offer, what company and solution would you choose and why? Yeah, the easy answer is Apple for a couple of reasons. One is the level of quality that they do the GAs with has got to be world-class. Um, you think about also like what's happening internally in this company that they can do these big uh, conferences and announce the features like three or six months out. How 
baked in and how like much development has already gone new and they're announced to feature six months out. I think from your experience in a SaaS business, you know, the, the ability to predict a roadmap three months out is like pretty certain six months out, things change so often. What does Apple's um, development cycle look like? Do they have the confidence to do this? Are these things like 90% built when the CEO goes on stage and announces it? And also how do, uh, I think we're really interested to think about Apple too, because you know, yeah, some people like Android and that's fine, but you know, your parents are probably gonna use an Apple device because it's so simple to use. Um, but how do they build these messaging and how do they know what their customers want? And I think one of my favorite things is when a new iOS or a new OS comes out is I love getting that new uh, experience and they're trying to teach you discoverability. I always take screenshots of like how they're trying to get you to understand their product. Uh, so I think it'd be cool to work inside of Apple. One, it's, it's gotta be incredibly operationally proficient as a business. Like obviously you look at their share price and the amount of cash they have, you know, and you think about like Michael Porter, like, you know, operational efficiency has to happen before strategy matters. Um, but it'd be just so interesting to work in there and see what level they're at and how their product markers are working with the, the PMs and the dev teams and how their product markers are working with the rest of the marketing team. Uh, product marketing changes at every organization, how they work with those different teams. So interesting to see how Apple places product marketers inside of that, um, that business decisions and the strategy decisions. It's funny you actually mentioned Apple and, and have them as your answer to this question, because I've actually noticed in the past couple announcement um, sessions or videos or whatever you want to call them, that they've actually had product marketers on stage talking about some of the solutions they're bringing, which I found interesting. You don't often yeah. see companies like elevate their product marketers to that level of exposure usually, so I found that fascinating. Yeah, usually it's PMs up there, which they deserve the credit because they're doing almost all the heavy lifting. But when you're a product marketer and you watch these Apple presentations and you see the product marketer telling the world about it, you're like, what? Like Apple put the product marketer on stage and talk about it and not the PM. Not that there's anything wrong with putting the PM there, but as a product marketer, like how did that happen? Like what role do they play in product development and strategy and like building narrative? Yeah, I think that's kind of like product marketing's we made it moment. Like we're on stage yeah. with Apple. We're, we've, we've been elevated to this level of, of uh, exposure and, and acknowledgement. So yeah, I, I love that answer. I think that's a great a great choice. And uh, for all the reasons you just mentioned, and as a, a, like most people, a fan of Apple products myself, I would absolutely jump at the opportunity to be a part of anything that Apple is doing. I yeah. think most product marketers would. So so yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. I also would be really curious to, to be in there and actually understand what their feature adoption is like. Like obviously, you know, their feature adoption for on an iPhone for text message or iMessage is probably gotta be 90, 95%. But some of those like more... Um, like how many people are using the sleep cycle stuff on there? Like where you can set, set the thing and it goes into sleep and it automatically sets your alarm. Are people doing that because they're organically finding it or is their friend telling them how to set these features like the vaccine passport? Like are people, how are they organically finding it versus their friends telling them? It'd be really interesting to understand what their product adoption um, curves look like. Yeah, I agree. I would imagine they're probably pretty strong just by the nature of how well they're designed and how intuitive they are. But for some yeah. of those niche things, yeah, I'd be curious myself to know what those are. Definitely something if you ever get the opportunity to talk with someone from Apple, um, you should ask them. And, and oh, someone from that, Apple is for sure listening to this and they're for sure going to reach out to us on LinkedIn, right? I hope so. I hope so. I'd love to chat. It'd be great. You have them as a guest on the show in a couple episodes. That would be yeah. fantastic. Awesome. Well, 
Ed, like I said, I always enjoy catching up with you, whether it's on LinkedIn or virtually face-to-face over Zoom as we're chatting now. And again, I just want to thank you for your time today and for sharing your insights. I think anybody who's looking to either get into product marketing or get into product marketing in the fintech space, um, either at their existing org or a new one, should definitely reach out to you, pick your brain, ask you some questions. And if that's the case, how can they do that? How can they get in touch with you? Best place would be LinkedIn, uh, not on Twitter. Don't go on Twitter. It stresses me out too much. But yeah, LinkedIn, I think it says Edward Ramston on LinkedIn. I'm sure you can post it in the show notes. Then one last thing, you made a comment earlier before and like complimented me on my knowledge of fintech. It's really nice to hear that. And I think I need to like give gratitude to people who've taught me this. Like Naz taught me a lot of stuff and Jordan and Laura at Jobber and people like you. So I'm only here today because other people I've worked with. So it's nice to hear that, you know, you think I'm smart, but I, I have to give like so much credit to people I've worked with in the past, like Nick Keiko and other people at, at Jobber and now at Clio. I've got a great team at Clio to learn from. So yeah, it's nice to hear that. You, you think I know a couple things, but it's only because I work with other smart people I get to learn from. Awesome. Ed. Well, you're a very humble individual. And as any good product marketer knows, you're only as good as the team and people around you. And I think what you just said really um, brings that home uh, and and reinforces that. So couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'm sure the future for yourself, um, not just in life, but at Clio is nothing but bright. And I'll be sure to be chatting with you again very soon. Thanks, Ed, for your time today. Thanks, Mark. Have a great day. You too. For everyone still tuned in, Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to sponsor an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are.